0: You are listening to Pastor Mike Greiner of Harvest Community Church in Catanning, Pennsylvania. We pray that you will be challenged today as you listen to a sermon entitled Managing God's House, based on 1 Timothy 1, verses 1 and 2, recorded on Sunday, September eleventh, two 2016. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org. Let's join Pastor Mike as he preaches. I'm excited about studying the book of 1 Timothy um, for one specific reason. Um, there is a thousand that God will give me along the way, but one that really makes me excited is our mission at Harvest is to increase the health and size of God's church everywhere. And it's a mission I've given my whole life to. Many of you um, at every campus are, are joining me in that mission It's because it's not my mission, it's God's mission. He is building His church. Well, 1 Timothy is a letter written from an apostle to a leader in the church in Ephesus And the whole point of the letter is to instruct, encourage, and teach him how to make the churches under his care healthy. And so it becomes a guidebook for us that we can apply right now and today. And so I'm not going to be in a hurry through the book. I don't know how long it will take. Uh, When we did our last book, the Bible, I mapped it all out uh, in advance. Um, uh, This time I'm not doing that. I may do that at some point, but I really want to see as I study it and as God teaches me, how fast should I go, God? How much, you see, because uh, the first person I preach the sermon to every time I preach is me. And um, and I don't really preach it as much as I ask God, what is it I've got wrong? What is it I need to hear? What is it I need to change? Uh, because I I know that the Bible is truly living and active and it speaks to you and it speaks to me. And if it doesn't speak to me, I really won't have much to say to you. So I am saying, okay, God, what do I got to hear? What do I need to hear? So I'm not necessarily in a hurry. Um, the, the goal is to let God feed us and teach us. And at every campus, like you all just experienced, um, I won't repeat this every week, but we will have... Uh, someone reading the chapter that we are going to be preaching from the entire chapter. The reason we're doing this is it's important that all of us understand the context of what you hear. Often you can hear a sermon on one or two verses. Today's sermon is on two verses. But if you just pull them out, you can miss... The the the, the book of 1 Timothy is really not a book, it's a letter. And a letter is meant to be written in one shot. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and it's going somewhere. And uh, we, I would have us read the entire book of 1 Timothy, but I... Time to, it takes a very long time to do that, so what we're going to do is read the chapter, which the verses that we're preaching from are found in, and I pray that none of you let this become tedious in your hearts. Um, It can only be good week after week to hear the same chapter. Uh, It'd be better if we all memorized it. Um, I haven't got to there yet, Um, uh, where I've memorized 1 Timothy, maybe some of you have, but the Word of God never stops feeding us. And so the reason we're going to do this is so the Bible does say, uh, Paul actually instructs Timothy to give time for the public reading of scripture. And so we're going to actually do that. And, and it gives us a chance to listen and think it through. I pray you'll all bring your Bibles and you'll be ready when the person comes up to read um, at, at whatever campus you're at, that you've got your paper Bible open or your electronic Bible open to 1 Timothy and you're ready to go and let God even talk to you before the sermon begins so you catch the context. Um, So with all that, as the only introduction to the entire book I'm going to give, let's jump right into verses 1 and 2. Paul, Paul starts just with the word Paul, he could say I am Paul, but I guess that would be odd, I think we'd start with dear Timothy, he just starts with Paul, and then he says an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope. That's who it's from, here's the two line, if this was a Christmas card Tag, or you know, you put on the present, as a to and a from. That was the to. Here's the from. To, excuse me, reverse. That was the from. Here's the to. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace. It's like a blessing. From God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. There's It's not a part of this text. I'm not going to develop this theme right here, but but he has no problem putting God the Father and Christ Jesus always in the same sentence, putting them on the same level because uh, Jesus Christ is man, but he is also God. Now, question: the first question I ask as we look at this to you and to myself is, does this need an introduction? Does Paul need to introduce himself to Timothy? Doesn't Timothy know who Paul is? And, 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 and as a rule, the more you know someone, the less you need to introduce. Most time, introductions are thought out because you don't know someone. Very few people come. Imagine every time I see my wife. Hello, Lori. Mike. A child of God, by the grace of God, saved by faith, to you, Lori, my beloved wife, in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace to you. Probably I'd have, we 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 would. I mean, I don't know. Maybe it would improve everything in our house. If I, I, don't know. Maybe I should do that. But generally, if you know someone, there there isn't an introduction needed. Doesn't he know Timothy? I want to suggest to you that that this letter and, and we're. Uh, This is our first point in our map here. This letter acts not only as instruction for Timothy, but it also acts as a letter that gives apostolic endorsement to Timothy's position as a leader. In other words, this is not a letter to Timothy. This is a letter to Timothy and to the entire church and all the house churches or whatever size churches he is going to be ministering to. And that theme can be seen throughout the letter The letter in in, in, when the church was young, when they would get letters from Paul or the other apostles, they would read them to the entire church. That was the norm. Often they're addressed to the entire church. Right? So, so uh, people would, would, would hear the letters read, those letters would be copied almost immediately. There would be many copies made, rewritten, so that they could be kept in this location or that location or passed around even to other towns. If you read the book of Revelation, you'll see there are seven churches that are um, listed in, the, in the, you know, the letters to seven churches. If, if you're familiar with that book, you, you may or may not know that those are actually on a mail route. Um, so that, that one letter can circulate church to church. Well, they wouldn't just take the letter. They'd copy it because um, they want one for themselves. So it's, it's the norm to have it read. And this introduction is because he's talking to Timothy with a purpose. He's saying, Timothy's my man. Listen to him. Now, let's look a, a bit and see that Paul's, how Paul identifies himself. He identifies himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus. He's an apostle, that's, what he, that's his title or office, by the command of God. God said, you will do this, and he does it. So let's, let's ask the question, who is he? What is an apostle? Well, the word apostle is an English word, it's a transliteration. Transliteration is a fancy way of saying, uh, if, you, if you don't want to translate a word, you make it sound like the word it came from. Like if you speak Spanish, you will know there's a word, Banco. Do you anyone know what banco means? It's a bank. Well, really, that's a transliteration. Instead of giving a Spanish word for bank, they just took the English word and added an O. Which is pretty lazy if you ask me, but hey, that's, I don't know, that's the way that works. And the word apostle is a transliteration of a Greek word, apostolos, or something that would be pronounced something like that. But what it means is messenger. That's all it means is messenger. Anyone who takes a message from one person to another person could be called, in Greek, an apostle. Not in English, because in English we say messenger. We've, we've used the word apostle kind of differently. Well, Paul is using the word very narrowly here. He, he is not using it to speak of any messenger. When he uses the word apostle, you have to think the big 12, the big twelve now if you 're a college football fan, I know it 's that time of year. you might be thinking of a Midwest uh, football conference, and that 's not what I mean when I say the big twelve. The big twelve is the twelve apostles there' sometimes uh, uh, can, can be confusion. Um, um, did you, you know you see a picture of Jesus with twelve guys, and, and you say those are his disciples. They are his disciples, but generally, in that picture, those twelve guys are also the apostles, not every disciple is an apostle, but every apostle is a disciple, if you can catch that. The big 12 have names like John and James and Andrew and Thomas and uh, those guys, Peter. Who are these guys? Well, these 12 men were... Chosen by Jesus from among all his disciples. He had a lot of disciples, a lot of people following him around saying, Whatever you say, we like. What, what you tell us to do, we'll do. We like you. You're our teacher. You're our guide. You're our Messiah. But of the, all those men and women, young and old, he chose 12 particular men and he shared his life with them. He gave them a three year intensive boot camp, three years with him. Where he went, they went. When he was invited to, if you invited Jesus to your house, whether you're rich or poor, he would come. Whether you were known as a sinner or you were known as a priest, he would come. But he always brought 12 guys with him. And then there were other people who just would tag along. So you always had to have a lot of Doritos and, you know, <laughs> and salsa or something if, if, if you're having Jesus come over. Because 12 dudes are coming in with him at least. He shared his whole life with them. When he went up to Galilee, they went to Galilee. When he went to Jerusalem, they went to Jerusalem. And when he was ministering to all the disciples, they would be there with him. When he got in a boat, they got in a boat. It was life-on-life ministry. They worked together. They rested together. They worshiped together. They argued together. They had conflict together. They suffered together. They had joy together. And they ate some more together. They did a lot of eating. I mean, eating eating is so important to every aspect of a joyful life. It really, it really is. And I mean that without any hyperbole. They traveled. But most importantly, they witnessed their master in the greatest act of love in the history of the universe. And that is when he went to the cross to die. They, the twelve had a front row seat for that. They, they had it foretold to them personally beforehand, and they didn't really catch it. They had it explained to them afterwards, and they got to see it with their own eyes. They got to see him go to the cross, and the cross is the greatest act of love in the history of the universe. Jesus dying on a cross. It's a strange thing. This is one thing that Paul says people who aren't Christians will stumble over because we actually say that the greatest act of love in all of mankind isn't isn't something romeo did for juliet or 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 something some a uh, mother did for her child or a father for this or or someone did for their country. It's actually a man allowing himself, when he didn't have to, to be stripped naked, beaten, and hung on a cross to die. Now, that is the greatest act of love ever. How can that be? Well, Romans 5, 6 to 8 explains it like this. For while we were still weak, we meaning all mankind, we meaning you, were weak. Now, this word weak, I have to stop for a moment. It doesn't mean not strong. Um, it it This weakness in its context is saying weak to save ourselves from our sin. You were weak, helpless, not able to do it. There was nothing you could do to take when we couldn't do anything to please God. Most people think, well, I can please God. I'll just be better right? We forget we're not good. We're not good. The reason why it's so easy to forget we're not good is because we're always better than somebody else. I mean, there's always someone we can set next to us that we can say, well, I may not be righteous, but compared to that person, I'm righteous. And you may say, I don't do that. Of course you do that. If there's ever anyone of whom you'd say, well, I'd never do that. You just did it. And, and you, there's there, Don't lie. There's a lot of people you'd say that. I can't believe she'd do that. I would never do that. And it could be over little things. It could be over big things. It's easy to see, well, I'm not that bad when you compare yourself to that person. But whenever a human being gets that raw spiritual moment, which is very rare in any of our lives, where we even begin to consider ourselves compared to the righteous and holiness of God himself, then you see we're not righteous. And there's nothing you can do in your sinful state to please God. Nothing. You're not going to be able to to do enough. You can't clean yourself up. You can't make yourself good. You can't save yourself. This is why all religion ultimately is a lie. There's no amount of prayers or pilgrimages or good deeds or turning over a new leaf or giving up this habit that is going to make us pleasing to God. We're sinners. They say, well, then how can we save ourselves? We can't. That's what that's saying. You're weak we're enemies of God. And in that moment, while we were weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for the weak, for you and me. He, he was the only holy man. He deserved no punishment compared to God. He was righteous and holy compared to all flesh. None of us were holy. People, it's so funny when you think about it, people criticize Jesus. Look, he hangs out with the drunkards and the sinners, the, the religious people would say. As if it was some sort of step up to hang out with them. A sinner is a sinner is a sinner. But Jesus was holy. And he went to that cross as a substitute to bear the punishment for your sin in your place. He died in your place as a substitute. Many people are going to stumble over that. They have through the years. They get it all intellectual. Well, that's silly. Why would God slay His own Son on my behalf? Or like, or they 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 get self righteous. I don't need that. But for millions upon millions of millions, who God shows that to, for that is the power to cause them to go from death to life, to have their sins forgiven, to be born again. So for. At the, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. And, and, and here Paul is saying, look, look, you, none of you want to really die for another human. You know, in our, and that's really true. In our minds, we're all heroes. We envision ourselves jumping on grenades and pushing someone out of the way of a bus and getting hit by the bus ourselves, and I, I'd really do that. No, you wouldn't. Most likely, you wouldn't. And maybe if you did, <laughs> it'd be a special... If you had time to sit and consider... It's either you die or that person's going to die. Would you die for that person? You're going to say no. Maybe, perhaps, if you think that person's particularly important to you, maybe you'd do it. But no one would die for their enemies. You just wouldn't do it. But God shows his love for us in this. That while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the great love of God. Instead of giving us the wrath we deserve, he gives the wrath on his son and dies in our place. He died so anyone can be saved. Anyone can be saved. That's the central message of the Bible is the love of God for you. And and I hope that no one here ever leaves here thinking anything else. The, The central message of the Bible is God's love for you. Oh, So he died to prove that. And the 12 witnessed this. They didn't only... Now I know you're saying, well, wasn't there Judas? Even he was chosen and he was replaced. But there's this 12 were the special 12. And they witnessed not only his death, they witnessed his resurrection. He appeared to them almost first. First he appeared to the women who loved him. Because you always take care of the women first. It's always a rule. I'm speaking to the young men now. Always remember that. Remember mom, grandmom, sister. Always remember the women first. Wife. He appeared to the women first, but then he went to his 12. He appeared to, to Peter. He appeared to the others. And they saw him risen from the dead. And that began a 40 day graduate study program, unlike their three years of training got them their undergrad. Right? They got their bachelor's degree in being the 12. But the real training, the, the grad training came when Jesus rose from the dead and for 40 days he appeared to f- over 500 people, all believers, no unbelievers, to show them that he was alive. But he spent most of the time and the resurrected form among the 12. Amazing to think about. You think you know this guy for three years. You hear, you know him, you know his voice, you know, you know what he acts like, you know what he looks like, you know the twinkle in his eye, and next thing you know, you watch him die, you think, oh, everything stinks now, I don't even, could things be worse? No, then three days later, he raises again, and there he is, healthier than you've ever seen him. And now he's teaching you. And what he taught during those 40 days is he took the scriptures. That's what we call the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi. And he showed how it all spoke of him. Because that's the truth. The entire Bible is about Jesus. Some think, well, no, the New Testament is about Jesus. The Old Testament is about what the Jews were doing before him. That's not so. From from Genesis to Malachi, it's a book about Jesus. And and Jesus showed them. Here I am here. Here I am there. Here I am here. here, there, There I am in Psalm 22. See that? He says, I'm here, 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 here. And and, and I taught you for three years. I'm teaching you this. This is going to be the content that you're going to go bring to the world. Because these are his 12 dudes. And then they witnessed his ascension. He left them. And they saw him leave. And they heard his marching orders as he went. The 12 apostles are very important guys. Yeah, the ground is level at the cross. They're sinners like you and me, saved the same way as you and me, just as forgiven as you and me. But before you start getting all egalitarian on these guys, they, they're special. <laughs> There's only 12 humans from the time that Jesus, after Jesus came, whose names are written on the walls of the New Jerusalem. And it's these guys, it's not you, and it's not me. And, and when he was leaving, he gave them his marching orders. Because they're like, hey, Jesus, can we chat? Um, when you were riding in on that donkey, we thought, this is it. He's going to be king. God's going to fix the world now. Sin, you know, it's going to be a nice place to live. And then we had that whole cross business. Now you're back. So we see, hey, cool. Nothing can stop you. Uh, so is it now? Now are you going to you know, kind of take over and stop people from doing evil and set up a good world? And you know what Jesus told him? He said, hey, 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 hey. Just like that, he said. It's in the Bible. (laughs) Not so fast. What's your hurry? Listen, the times that that's going to happen and what's going to happen is not your business. That's the father's. Haven't you learned to trust him yet? But you, I'm leaving. But while I'm gone, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses. Both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. And he said, You, you, I have all authority. I have beaten the grave. I'm the one human that gets out of here alive. Tim Morrison was wrong. And he, and he said, You will go into all nations and make disciples. And, and, and that's your job. Those were his marching orders, and boom, he leaves. They are the messengers. The 12 are, they're not extraordinary men, but they have an extraordinary job. In other words, they're ordinary men with an extraordinary job. They're uniquely trained, uniquely qualified in a way that cannot be repeated. So here, let's put this down on our map. He equipped the apostles fully by his friendship with them, by the time spent with them, by intellectually training them, by setting the example for them, and finally, by sending them his holy Spirit and we must not forget that stage when he left he said don't go anywhere wait in Jerusalem I've got something grand for you the Holy Spirit is coming the comforter the one who will lead you who will remind you everything I said and he will give you power and they waited and they received the Holy Spirit's power and these twelve went out and they were witnesses proving the gospel witnesses I saw it it's true prove it I will prove it by telling you I saw it, and I'll tell you his words. And they did that. And they also proved it by doing miraculous works through the power of the Spirit. These 12 were doing such miracles that people wanted to worship them. They had to stop them more than once. Say, we are just men like you. We're doing these miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus. Worship him. And they also proved it not only by their words and by their works, but by their suffering. If, 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 if you say that this is true, would you be willing to die for it? They'd say, I'd be, I, it is my pleasure to give my life for the Savior. And they all suffered and died for the sake of Christ. Now, that's what an apostle is. That's the definition of an apostle in that sense. Not the wide messenger, the big 12. But we got to note something here, and that is the apostles did not choose to be apostles. None of them said, hey, I know you're choosing 12, how about me? Or if they had it, wouldn't have mattered. There were hundreds and hundreds of people Jesus could have chosen and he chose them. There was no application process. There was no, he didn't have to post it 60 days before hiring. He didn't have to be, he was not an equal opportunity employer. Bernie Sanders voters would be scandalized to know how Jesus goes around getting employees. And, and, and I mean, there was, no, there was no EEOC you're going to appeal to. He didn't have any women. He didn't have any uh, affirmative action. They were all Jews. So there's a lot of people who hate the Jews. Well, guess what? The Jews got the best job. It's the way it goes. And if you want to complain, take it to the office. He chose those 12 guys. Well, it's not fair. He, who are you to say they were chosen? But that also means they didn't have a choice. So they're like, hey, um, I'd really like to support this whole church thing you're doing, but I'm not really into being thrown into oil or beaten and stuff. How oh, well, about my brother here? I have the job. Now it's you. Anyone can, anyone can be a messenger but not anyone can be one of the twelve. The first church. Because you've got to remember, when the twelve began their ministry, there was no church. There were no Christians in the world. I know it's obvious, but we don't often think about it. There were, only, there were Jews in Israel. And there were some Jews scattered around. But they didn't believe in Jesus. And all the other religions were pagan. So these twelve's job was to reach the entire world with the gospel. And they did go about planting churches. And as they planted them, from the beginning, the content of what the people thought was the truths they needed was called the apostles' teachings. They were dedicated to the apostles' teachings on a regular basis. Because these 12 were the only ones who could say, Jesus said this is what we're supposed to teach. Jesus said the Old Testament means that. And that, by the way, is where we get our New Testament. It is the summation of the apostles' teachings, or at least what the Holy Spirit wanted us to know of the apostles' teachings. And that explains the whole Bible. The the New Testament is the gift from the 12 to us. And the early church immediately recognized them as the authority. If If they came into town and said, no, you're teaching the wrong thing, this is the right thing, they win. The only one who could correct them... Or other apostles. They said, no, 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 you're getting that wrong. Anyone could be a messenger, but not anyone can be the twelve. And so then we come to this 1 Timothy 2, where Paul says he's one of them, and that's a problem because Paul was not one of the twelve. In fact, during the time on earth, Paul didn't even believe that he was Messiah. We don't know where Paul was, off studying somewhere, perhaps. But he was not worshiping Jesus. In fact, when the apostles began the church after Jesus ascended to heaven, Paul's role with the church was to be a jihadist. You know what those are, jihad? He was, he, he was responsible for the death of Christians. He was unrighteously oppressing, having people killed, having people dragged away, having people thrown in jail, taking their possessions. He was a powerful man among the Jews. He he was very well educated. He was very well placed among the leaders of the Jews. And he had a lot of connections with the Romans. He was even a Roman citizen. He had power and he used it to oppress the 12. And he did that for a while. So, uh, he kicked off an oppression that was so strong that all the early Christians left Jerusalem. Which led to the gospel going to where they went. Just the twelve stayed. Everyone was afraid of him. His name was Saul then. It changed to Paul. Why? I don't know. It doesn't matter to me. But everyone was afraid of him. And then one day, everything changed. While on a trip from Jerusalem to Damascus to kill more Christians, he thought they were bad, and he had papers to arrest folks. He was on his way. Jesus knocked him to the ground. And I don't mean that figuratively. He knocked him onto the ground, physically knocked him on the ground, knocked him on his hind parts. He's on his way. I'm going to go get me some more Christians. Bam! And he felt it because he was on the ground. But he then saw, as long as he could, that didn't last long because he would soon be blinded. He saw light. He saw, boom, here I am. He can't see. He heard a voice talking to him. He didn't sense it in his spirit. He heard it with his physical ears. Saw it with his physical eyes until they couldn't see anymore, which was pretty quick. And he laid on the ground, and Jesus was standing over him. (laughs) It's like, boom! So, what are you doing again? It's kind of one of those things. In fact, the conversation is very much like that. Because what Jesus said to him was, why are you persecuting me? And this is not the subject of this particular sermon, but it's interesting to note for all those people who, I hate the organized church. They're so hypocritical. That... There's people who just love to beat on the bride. Christians today are so stupid. Christians today, Christians have always been stupid, but we are his bride. The church is so dumb that if you persecute the church, Jesus says you're persecuting me. But that's a whole, whole another sermon that's not this one. But he said, Why are you persecuting me? So Paul's laying there, and let's let him, this is what he said happened. This is from Acts 26. He says, And I said, Who are you? <laughs> who, who are you? <laughs> Lord, and the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Okay, there's a moment of, I got to rethink everything. (laughs) I mean, and then he says this. This is what Jesus says. The moment he does this, he says, but rise and stand upon your feet. Get up. You just knocked me down. Get up. If Jesus says, get up, the resurrected Jesus, he's, you know, that voice is commanding. I'm getting up. My legs could be broken in 18 places. I'm getting up. He gets up. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant. He, Jesus is not accustomed to asking people to work for him. <laughs> he will invite people to come to him, but when he wants a worker, he just says you. To appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. I don't like... the the translation of that, because it's difficult, but I looked at another. It's just it's difficult in Greek, so it's hard in English. Um, I'm going to point you as a witness to the things that you've already seen in me. We don't know what those are, and the things I'm going to show you, he's saying. And delivering you from your people, that would be the Jews, and from the Gentiles. Implying everybody's going to try to kill you and beat you up. And a lot of them do beat them up, but he delivers them. To whom I am sending you, he sent them to the Gentiles, the nations, the non-Jews, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, and that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Look at how wonderful Jesus is. He interrupts Paul the oppressor to say, Okay, you're switching teams. Take that jersey off. Put this jersey on. You're on my team now. And here's what you're going to do. You're going to go to all those pagans and you're going to tell them who God is so that they can be delivered from Satan. And it really is, there's people who say, oh, you shouldn't bring the gospel to native peoples. You're disturbing the indigenous process. Listen, make no mistake. People live in abject fear of the spirit world. That's just an anthropological fact. Look at Nagaland, the most Christian state in the world in Far East India, Bunch of tribes, all headhunters, killing each other on a regular basis. Headhunters. Literally lopping off heads. For fun, because you're the bad guy. Now they don't. Because someone in Boston sent missionaries to tell them about the gospel and open their eyes. And now they actually get together and the tribes know each other. And there's 95% churched, most Christian state on the planet. Do you think they're better off Lopping off heads. No, because they had their their eyes open. They turned from darkness to light. From the power of Satan, who caused them to fear. To the power of God. And to receive forgiveness of sins. And to be set among the holy with him. So Jesus grabbed Paul to do this. Jesus grabs everyone who follows He just grabbed him. He said, you, come now. And by the way, this should mess with whatever theology you have of how folks get saved. It should mess with it. It should make it uncomfortable. Christian, are you hearing me? It should mess with your theology. He didn't ask him. He didn't beg him. He didn't talk him into it. He didn't wait to see if he liked it. He said, you, you're coming with me. And Paul said, what can I do? The Bible teaches us and what I'm presenting to you is Paul is apostle number 13. He's he's apostle number 13. He also learned directly from Jesus though we don't exactly know how. And as far as the Bible reveals and therefore that's it. He's the last one. There may be messengers that you can call apostolic, but there are no more apostles. I see people running around today saying they're apostles. I can tell you about this guy who was a seminary prof who wrote a book saying he's an apostle like Paul, and he's actually mapped out hundreds of apostles all around the world that you can go visit yourself. In fact, there's one in State College, Pennsylvania. I went by the office to see what that apostle looked like. The office looked so run down. I thought, he can't be. This is silly. There's 12, and then there's Paul. And Paul's different. In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians was, was describing his relationship to the other apostles and he said it like this. In 1 Corinthians 15, 8, he says, Last of all, as to one untimely born, Jesus appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles. He, he, he's putting himself with the twelve. I'm the least one. I'm unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. When Jesus was... Bringing the 12, he chose Judas knowing he was a betrayer, and he was training the 12, but he always knew he had one more, but it wasn't time to get him yet. Paul says, I'm like one untimely born. You can imagine a woman who's had four, five, six kids, and she thinks, I'm done with this. They're all 15 and older, and then, whammo, surprise. (laughs) That's what Paul says. I'm like one untimely born. You didn't see me coming, did you? Jesus personally taught Paul the gospel. Three years after this event, he would go to Jerusalem and put himself in front of the 12 and say, let me explain to you the gospel Jesus told me. Freaky. It was the gospel they were preaching. They actually said, okay, you are one of us. Paul was an apostle, but unique in how he arrived. And his job was to reach the Gentiles. In fact, in 1 Timothy 2, which we'll get to eventually, in verse 7 he says, For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. You see, Paul labored long. And, he, and read the book of Acts. It's, it's, you'll read, a lot, most of it's about him and what he did. He is the one who really pushed the church out with his missionary journeys, raised up leaders to help him, and, and spread the church to all the pagan towns of the Roman Empire. And by the time he's writing this letter to Timothy, he's nearing the end of his life. He has earned his props. Everyone knows him. Most in the churches love him, but even if you don't love him, you respect him. Paul is the dude. He's going to die soon. We already know that. He knows that. He's in Italy. He's going to write another letter. And and the Italians are going to whack him. (laughs) There's a little stereotype in there, but it's true. Nero is an Italian emperor, and he's going to whack him pretty doggone soon after writing this. But Paul is somebody. He, He is the church planner. Timothy... Work closely with him. They know each other very well. Paul, like the others, had the authority to write the New Testament. The majority of books in the New Testament were written by Paul. They were letters circulated through the churches. Not the majority of words. The majority of words are Luke, because he wrote Luke and Acts. And Paul knew him pretty well, too. But the majority of letters were written by Paul. And then he writes a letter to Timothy who knows him so well that he could say, my true child in the faith. But he doesn't say, hi, Tim. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ by the command of God, to you, Timothy, my true child. Everything in this letter to Timothy is for the benefit of the entire church. And it's authoritative. It is to be taken very seriously. Paul's purpose, do you see it? As an authoritative apostle Talk to Timothy. Timothy, you do this in the local church and read this in the local church so that when you read that in the local church, everyone knows it comes from me. Because, Timothy, if you ever get a little scared, I said it. Tell the church I said it. The expectation was that the churches would obey everything in this letter. And here I bring it down to you and I, Harvest. Isn't that what makes this a great letter for us to read? Because if God expects them to obey whatever they hear, doesn't he expect you and I to obey whatever we hear in it? How could we not be excited? God, tell us, what would you have us learn in 1 Timothy? And it's going to be work, because we've got to work it out in our century. But the truths are from there. So with well, that as the very long introduction to everything, for. Fast observations from these first two verses. And they're meant to be fast. They're written fast. They're the least of my notes. Whether I'm fast is a whole other question. One, leadership in the church begins and ends with God. Paul introduces himself, Paul. That's it. But then he says, an apostle of, watch this, Christ Jesus. By the command of God our Savior. And of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father. Christ Jesus our Lord. If you're keeping count in those In those two verses, in those that one little introductory sentence, he mentions himself once. He mentions Timothy once, although he does call him a child, so that's maybe twice. And he calls himself an apostle, so that's a title. But he mentions Christ Jesus those exact words three times. He mentions God the Father twice, calling him Savior and Father. Paul knows who sent him and always puts him first. Paul is the most famous man in the Christian church, perhaps one of the most famous men in the the Roman Empire in his day because of what he was doing, or or maybe infamous, Um, but he never sought to make a name for himself. No matter how esteemed he was by the churches he planted, he never tried to make the kingdom of Paul. And all church leaders throughout the ages and even today should remember that because there's always the temptation for people who get to stand and declare the word of God, which is a powerful word, to start to think that they have some sort of power themselves and should have some sort of the fame. And that's just a big lie. Even the 13th apostle is just a messenger. All church leaders, it's never about them. It's always about Jesus. Al Moller, in his book, uh, The Conviction to Lead, which I really like, wrote, uh, has a quote about this. He says, years ago, I heard the story of an old preacher who told a group of younger preachers to remember that they would die, keep them humble. And he said, quote, they're going to put you in a box, and they're going to put you in a box, and they're going to put the box in the ground. They're going to put the box in the ground, and they're going to throw dirt on your face, and then they're going to go back to the church and eat potato salad. So true. (laughs) So if you ever start thinking you're something, remember that. Jesus saves. Jesus is God. Jesus is the glorious one. We serve God, existing eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus died. Jesus rose. Jesus coming again. Second thing to observe is, leaders in the church are trained in the same way as Jesus trained them. And this is important to get because... There's, I should say they should be, because it's not always true. And by that I mean two things. They're nurtured, they're to be nurtured by the church and called by God. Nurtured by the church, by that I mean, look, Paul calls Timothy his true child in the faith. He doesn't call him my true student in the faith, my true fellow worker in the faith. He is those things. But he doesn't call him, he doesn't identify him as that. I've known you. We. I love you. I'm like your daddy. You're like my boy. It's a relationship. Leadership training is supposed to first be about relationship. Leadership training for leaders in the church does involve intellectual content. It involves study. We're to handle the word of truth well. And that means work in the intellectual realm. But that's supposed to be in a a relational context. On-the-job training. Jesus, he didn't just teach these guys stuff. He, He showed them. Let me show you how to talk to someone who's religiously really uptight. And he showed them. And then he, let me show you how to talk to someone who's, who's done a million sins and is feeling very ashamed. And he showed him. Let me t- show you how to handle children. Let me show you how to deal with d- demons. Let me show you how to deal with, with opposition. Now you try it. And he let him make mistakes and he'd say, that was pretty dumb, wasn't it? He seemed to say that to Peter a lot. But it was he was it, 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 read read his last words before the cross in John 15, 16, 17, and you'll see him telling them, You're my friends. It's always relational. And the reason this is important is, is because we we tend to make to make a, a, something that's a calling from God into a vocation we choose. It's a calling from God. God chooses the leaders. We think, look, if you want to be, you want to be a pastor, you, it's America. you can be what you want. Sure, you can be a pastor, go to school, get trained, go get ordained, you're a pastor. No. if you're not chosen and, and yet there are ways to discern it and you're going to have to work that out and the church should help you, but if you're not called, you don't, you shouldn't do it. you, know, do you ever wonder, do you ever sit through sermons and think, I think God called this guy to be the milkman. I mean, everyone around him knows it. It, 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 it's, it, it, it. It's the biggest the thing that gives me more delight more often than you know is that I'm the pastor. And it doesn't give me delight because I think, whoa, look at this. I can't believe it's me. I think the least likely candidate to my brain is me. It's like a funny joke on me or, the, or you. <laughs> I know my pedigree, my background, my ambitions, which were right up there with a the slug. <laughs> he said, you, I'm taking, you, your head is so backwards. You, I got a job for you. you there, are, there are better, you know, God says, fine. I'll, I'll get glory if, if yo-yo like you, if I can get a chimp to preach, he gets glory. That's, I think, what he's saying to me. But we act like it's a career choice. You can just go to school, like, 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 like being an engineer. You go to school, you learn what the smart people know, the guys with the funny hat at graduation say, look how smart you are, and then you get a job. Well, if you're an engineer, you better go to that school because I don't want to drive on a bridge by a guy who didn't go to school. But we think the same thing, and pastors do it all the time. Ah, you just go to school. Look, you got to have the intellectual training. And yeah, there's nothing more efficient in the Western world than a university for giving a bunch of data. But the true leaders are supposed to be raised up within. My first choice for elders, pastors, it, it, they're the same thing, but I'm not going to go into why now because we don't have time. But, 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 but the, the, those who are, the Bible says, make their living off the gospel. That's proper. It's good to have some who work that way. Um, my first choice is always from within. My first choice is someone who's been in our midst, who we've worked with, who we've seen, who we know is gifting. We know whether they're humble. It's always from within because that's that's supposed to be the natural greenhouse. We can't always do it because you don't always have the man you need. But just to get a resume and go, yeah, you got a nice resume, but what sort of man are you? How do I know you're called? Are you humble? Will you? you let's just hear. This guy's got a great resume. We're going to inflict him on the sheep of God. It's not the ideal way to do it. We've done it. They did it with me. <laughs> you got lucky. They didn't ask enough questions, I don't think. I, I'm serious. <laughs> they should have asked me this or that. We 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 dragged guys. we've we've got most of our guys came from within. A few of us, Matt, Dave, me, came from a resume. And we dragged them into a room with their wives and with a bunch of men and asked them a bunch of questions because we don't care about the resume that much. We're trying to figure out, what sort of person are you? Anyway, third, leaders are responsible to maintain the gospel of faith given to us by the apostles. Paul, after introducing himself, immediately declares this purpose. Correct those who are teaching who are getting it wrong within the church. It's the very first thing. We're gonna hit that verse two to seven next week. But the point here is it matters what people teach in the church. The content of the Bible is not negotiable. it's okay to be creative in delivery. It is not okay to be creative in content and 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 teachers and preachers are always tempted to tell people either a what those people they think they want to hear because they're afraid or B to come up with original stuff and boy that that'll sell books. People love that. Oh, they just want to freak out on the oh, do you see all the prophecies of the Book of Enoch? Oh, for goodness sake. If you're there, by the way, just you want to know the short answer it's crap. Okay? Feel better now? Just stop reading that. We'll get to that next week. The message of the gospel and of of Christ and the cross are well explained in the book. 66 books and no so fresh, all yelling about God's righteousness. 100 proof jam, and it's not a scam. That's all we need is the book, the powerful message of God to save. And it's up to the leaders of the church to manage that message. That's their first job. Finally, leaders are supposed to exist in the church. You wouldn't think that needs to be said, but in today's world, people say, well, I don't need to organize church. Because that's cool, right? Well, I don't need to organize church. There's people who write Christian books, sell millions of Christian books to you people who don't go to church. And they'll say, because it's so institutionalized, I do house church. By that, they mean them and their wife. Don't want to mention any names, John Eldridge. <laughs> you know why people, look, look. People who, who, who think I can be a Christian and thrive outside the church are deceiving themselves. Because we grow in community. You can't grow in community without a church, and you can't have a church that doesn't have leaders. But then there's another kind of people, they stay in the church and they criticize everything. That there's people probably in this room who are like this. I don't know who you are, but as soon as you leave, you will give an ear fill to anyone hearing how stupid what I said was, how dumb the music was, and how bad everything was. And you may stick around here for years saying that to whoever will listen. Or you may hop church to church because you can never find the, the really sincere church. The real issue is you have a problem trusting that God leads through cracked vessels. God leads. There is no perfect humans except Jesus. If we made you, critic, the pastor, we'd have another cracked pot leading. The question is can God lead through imperfect people? And do you trust God? And, and the other, the really the issue, you want to go to church at all, the issue is you're saying, I am Lord of my life. You can dress it up. You can church it up, as my brother Jerry likes to say. But what you're really saying is, I will not be ruled by anyone but myself, which is rebellion. So with those observations of the very first two verses, I end with this, an invitation, church, to join me. Will you determine that what we learn together from Timothy over the next several months, as we learn what God expects us of us that we will change the way we think and the way we act I can determine it for me will you determine that for you, you will t- if, if we all come out and nothing changes in your life or our church we are the faithless ones James talked about who hear the words and don't do it so I'm inviting you to join me in that obedience will you make that commitment with me thank you for listening to this sermon from Harvest Community Church we invite you to join us at any one of our four campuses located in Catanning, Petrolia Valley, Indiana, and Freeport. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org.